Hello, everybody, and welcome back again to yet another episode of the Nail It Ortho podcast. My name is Dr. Cole. Myself and Dr. Spencer Woolwine are doing this OITE slash board review series. We are on the spine, you all's favorite subject. We hope you all have been enjoying listening to us talk about some spine as well as some as well as just learning some things. You know, we we have done a couple of episodes on different topics. We've done sports, basic science, as well as trauma already. So we hope that you all are enjoying this. And if you haven't already, put your email down to stay in the loop to get access to our podcast companion book. Those are just kind of some notes that go along with these podcast episodes. So without further ado, let's go ahead and get into today's episode. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring Drs. Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. If you do order x-rays, let's say that patient comes back still having the same pain or worsening symptoms now, now they have a red flag symptom. Um, what are you looking for on x-rays when evaluating for back pain? Yeah, and I think some of the most common x-rays that people get are, you know, the APs and then uh, a neutral lateral and then a flexion and extension view. Um, but I'm also going to cover the oblique views of what to get. Just on your AP uh, and lateral, you want to look at your coronal and sagittal plane alignment. You know, you can note for any scoliosis. You can note for any loss of lordosis. Um, you can note for any disc degeneration, which may be... Um, as we may be noted with uh, decreased joint space in those intervertebral body discs, you can look for osteous abnormalities. You can look to see if there are any uh, chondrosseous spurs on um, any of the vertebral bodies. Um, on your dynamic flexion and extension views, you can use this to evaluate for any instability. So you can there are some um, there are some lines on on the X-ray. Uh, if you look up lateral um, of a lumbar spine, there are a couple of lines that you can that you can look at to see and make sure that those are still smooth, like the anterior spinal line, et cetera. And so if there are any shifts in any vertebrae over the other, those, those are all things that can clue you towards instability. And we'll, we'll talk about those um, at some point here soon. And on your oblique views, these are actually helpful views to rule out a pars interarticularis defect as well as facet joint arthropathy. So those are the views to rule out again a pars interarticularis defect. That's going to be those oblique views. Um, but I think normally, generally, what most people get is an AP and a lateral and a flexion and extension view. That way you can see and note if there's any shift in the lumbar spine when they move. Now, what are some indications to get an MRI in a patient with low back pain? Uh, yeah, so if you're uh, moving up, uh, kind of in the workup of a patient with low back pain, you decided to get an MRI, you, um, you're really having to wait approximately three months uh, for a patient who is otherwise just having low back pain. Like you, you're not concerned about anything else other than like a herniated disc, just because most of those patients will uh, feel better within that time and an MRI won't be required. But if you've tried a physical therapy, you've tried other non-op treatment, and they're still not getting better, then an MRI may be useful. Um, if you're concerned about malignancy, uh, an MRI is ordered sooner rather than later. If you're concerned about infection, um, or uh, if they have just 
significantly debilitating symptoms where they are now uh, out of work, they are losing sleep, um, they have family members that are starting to complain about how much they're complaining, <laughs> that sort of stuff. Then you're getting an MRI because um, they may have a uh, herniated disc or uh, recently like now uh, unstable spondylolisthesis that was previously stable, but their traumatic injury caused that fibrous union to become unstable or something like that. So um, be prudent with your MRIs, but um, I think the patients will kind of self-select for which ones you get an MRI on or not. And um, let's just say you have a patient 55 years old, they're over, so they're over 50 um, and you get some imaging. Are, uh, are you expecting to see any pathology with that, like a herniated disc or should their spine look normal? <laughs> yeah, I mean, most people over the age of 50, they're going to have something on MRIs, really almost a fourth or 25% to 37% of asymptomatic patients have a herniated disc on MRI, which is, uh, which is, I've heard, which is why lawyers like, you know, if you're in a car accident, and lawyers love to get an MRI, because most of the times it'll show something that's going on, but it's hard to correlate whether or not that injury was due to the accident, or if it was already there beforehand. Uh, because we know, again, there are there can be a lot of false positives on MRI. And, you know, most patients have a herniated disc, but are asymptomatic. I, th I think it's kind of similar to like, um, in our sports talk, we talked about a rotator cuff and uh, and most people over the age of 60, if you MRI their shoulders, almost almost everybody has some type of a rotator cuff tear, but it may not be symptomatic. So this is, I guess, kind of the something similar, but in the spine. Um, but so say we have a patient that had a herniated disc before and we treated it non-operatively and, you know, and, and they got a lot better, but now they have a recurrent herniated disc. Uh, what is the best imaging study to try to find out what's going on? Uh, you want to get uh, an MRI with contrast, so with gadolinium, to look for recurrent uh, herniated disc. Um, and then uh, this, is, this is pretty commonly tested with uh, younger patients. Um, but what's the most sensitive method for detecting an ismic spondylolisthesis? Yeah, so this is going to be a single photon emission computed tomography or SPECT. So again, I'll say it again for those of you that haven't heard of this before. It's going to be a single photon emission computed uh, tomography. And the definition of kind of what that is, again, it's a single photon emission computed tomography. Uh, it's a nuclear medicine tomographic imaging technique. Yeah, using some gamma rays. It uh, is very similar to conventional nuclear medicine, um, planar imaging using a gamma camera, but it is able to provide true 3D information. That is the Mayo Clinic definition of a SPECT scan. <laughs> uh, so that is the most sensitive method for detecting ismic spondylolisthesis. And uh, I remember when I was an intern, or I don't, it might have been a med student. I was trying to figure out like how to pronounce that word, and it took me a long yeah. time to figure that out. Um, but anyways, so what are some of the disc 
changes that are going to be seen with intervertebral disc degeneration? Uh, so this is going to be tested at some point in some fashion uh, on the OITE. And it's uh, kind of similar to um, like, what are the changes seen in articular cartilage in osteoarthritis versus general aging, like that sort of stuff. It'll, um, so in patients who have intervertebral disc degeneration, um, they may have like a chart that has arrows that point up and down and have a bunch of things listed on what goes up, what goes down, what stays the same. And so um, for disc degeneration, you're going to have a decrease in proteoglycans. And like we learned in the basic science, proteoglycans are things like agrican, which hold on to water. So you're going to get a loss of hydration, lead to the collapse of the disc. You're going to get an increase in uh, pentosidine, which is uh, uh, like pentosidine crosslinks, like arginine and glycine uh, crosslinks, and advanced glycosylation. Um, that's just a f the nature of aging, but also can be seen in diabetics. Um, and then you get a relative increase in decorin, and decorin is the uh, protein um, that's kind of, I think it just helps kind of hold everything together, but it's really in response to uh, trying to make the disc as normal as possible. So you get a uh, this relative increase because other things are leaving and other things are degrading in this uh, disc to, to cause the loss of disc height. Um, and then is there any correlation between degenerative disc disease and low back pain? No, there is actually not a correlation. Uh, there are multiple studies out there that's, that say that. Um, but there are altered segmental biomechanics that are seen in degenerative disc disease that may play a role in low back pain. And we are back to actually about to get into this, the, the pathoanatomy uh, of it. So what is the pathoanatomy seen with degenerative uh, disc disease? Um, How does so, this happen? Yeah, so first you're going to get uh, intervertebral disc collapse, and that's due to the decrease in proteoglycans, a loss of hydration, and altered connections between the uh, collagen fibers. So you get the disc collapse. When the disc collapse, you get a loss of uh, lordosis, and you get chronic anterior cord com compression uh, via uh, this loss of lordosis. Because uh, if you think about it on the sagittal of, an, of a lumbar spine or looking at it from the side, um, if you have a decrease in lordosis, you're pulling the spinal cord closer to the, uh, the to the posterior aspect of the vertebral body. So the anterior cord is going to get most affected. Uh, you're going to get anterior disc uh, spurs and osteophytes. You're going to get spondylitic foraminal changes, meaning these uh, the neural foramina or where the nerve roots leave the spine are going to get smaller. And then uh, you can have segmental instability if it progresses to a point where each vertebral body is so eroded on the next one below it that it becomes an unstable spine. Um, and there are some 
people out there that still do this. Uh, it's not as uh, preferred as it once was, um, but they thought about, uh, hey, if we can evaluate the disc using uh, a technique called discography, then maybe that will help us understand uh, the intervertebral bodies a little bit better or the intervertebral discs a little bit better. What is discography? Yeah, so this is actually, just like you're saying, it's kind of controversial as as the role that it plays, but just like you're saying, so a discography is when they actually inject dye into the intervertebral disc, and this reproduces their pain in their back that they're feeling so that you are pretty much you're trying to figure out what the clinical pain generator is. And that's what this is. So this helps you correlate your MRI findings with the clinical symptoms. Um, I know some, some spine guys that use this every so often, um, but like you said, I, I don't know a lot of people that I don't know a lot of people that routinely uh, use discography. Um, yeah, I, I think it's because uh, it every time you do it, it advances their disc disease. And so people are like, well, why are we going to intentionally do something if it's going to advance their disease anyways? So, right. Uh, so they, I think that's why people have gotten away from it is because they're actually uh, causing injury in the discs that they think are causing injury. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? And, um, and that being said, so what is the difference between acute and chronic back pain? I guess this can help, number one, in your coding, uh, but two, kind of just to know what to classify something when a patient comes in and they said, oh, man, I've been having back pain since 1995. You know, like, what, what's the difference between <laughs> acute and chronic back pain? <laughs> um, so acute, and uh, just like we would think, is a shorter time frame. So anywhere from about six weeks to three months is considered acute. Uh, but when you're in the three to six month range, then you're starting to deal with more chronic back pain, um, mostly because these patients are, they've been seen by you or multiple other providers for this. And um, they're just in a kind of a chronic stage. It's the acute phase of their inflammation or injury should have resolved by now. And now they're in the chronic phases of their back pain. Um, and uh, let's see, let's say you have a patient, uh, a very uh, pleasant person who is trying to get out of work or uh, got hurt on the job and they have acute low back pain. What are you going to tell that patient in, uh, in clinic? Yeah. So, you know, acute low back pain is typically self-resolves, you know, 90% of patients or so. Uh, get better with non-operative treatments. So I don't think this is something that you know, so need a rest to surgery for. Uh, there are some reasons for that, which we'll talk about uh, quite soon. Um, but again, so you know, the, the typical treatment for acute low back pain is going to be non-operative. You know, you have a conversation with them. Um, you let them know. You know, that, again, these these get better with time. And we also do have some uh, some treatment options we could do. One thing you could do is acetaminophen. Uh, you can also uh, prescribe some NSAIDs or non-steroid non anti-inflammatory drugs. Uh, there is a role for muscle relaxants, um, muscle relaxants, excuse me, active physical therapy, 
Uh, but one thing you want to avoid bed rest. So you don't tell them, you know, go and lay in bed for two weeks uh, while your back gets better. It's kind of, you know, you get some NSAIDs and you go to therapy. They kind of have you actively doing things. Um, so, yeah, again, you want to pre- avoid any type of prolonged bed rest. And so those are all the treatments that we are. I mean, those are all the patients that we're going to start to treat non-operatively. But what are some possible reasons to operate for acute low back pain? Uh, infection and cauda equina are probably the ones you're going to see in the ER as well as fractures. Um, if you're concerned about, uh, primary or metastatic, uh, neoplasm, um, that may be a reason to operate sooner rather than later. Um, and, uh, like you said, you, you're trying the non-op stuff unless, you know, they say, two weeks ago it hurt, but now I'm, I can't walk or I can't lift my foot up. I now have a steppage type gait, or, um, I have a Trendelenburg gait because it's more higher up in the lumbar spine and like L2 is affected. Um, it's, uh, those sort of things where, uh, you may be operating sooner on these patients, uh, rather than, than waiting the usual, uh, like eight weeks to three months for reevaluation. Um, and then, uh, you astutely went over acute low back pain, but now let's say this patient has their pain still, or, or no, this is a new patient that's referred to you because if they still had their pain, then you might operate on them. So let's say this is a new patient, uh, initially treated by their GP for the first couple of months with just, uh, maybe, a uh, Norco's or, a bed rest or something like that, but now they're at three months. What are you going to do for the treatment of some chronic back pain? Yeah. So they come to your office and they're saying, yeah, I've been having pain for like, you know, three, four months. And, you know, it's just, uh, just still there, or, you know, I've had pain in my back for six months or so. Uh, you know, you still go with non-out treatment. Non-out treatment is the first thing, especially for patients just with chronic back pain. And again, non-op treatment is very similar to some of the treatment for acute low back pain. It's going to be NSAIDs. It's going to be physical therapy, conditioning, behavioral modifications. So, you know, if they have a high BMI, you, you know, counsel them for, to lose some weight, um, stop smoking. So smoking cessation, these are all types of behavioral modifications. And the treatment for this is, you know, you do this for one, three, up to six months, you know, like sometimes this can take a little while, but you really want to exhaust all your, all your non-operative treatment. Um, uh, you, all you definitely want to exhaust your non-operative treatment when you're treating chronic low back pain. Uh, now, what are, what are some surgical options for chronic low back pain and say that again, they have not improved with anything and, and this is, and this back pain is due to degenerative disc disease. Um, yeah, so you're looking at, uh, I mean, at this point, you've already ordered your x-rays, you already ordered your MRI, and now you're trying to decide what is the etiology of their low back pain. If it is uh, instability, then uh, you can consider a fusion. So uh, you can do that via open or minimally invasive. I don't think one has been shown to be superior to another. And that's why there's a lot of uh, spine fellowships out there that advertise like minimally invasive techniques uh, here, like offered here sort of stuff. 
um, just because they have been proven to be beneficial to patients compared to uh, more open procedures. Um, you can uh, also consider total disc arthroplasty, uh, which is uh, pretty cool in concept. We talked a little bit about it with the cervical spine, um, but there's really no difference in outcomes between fusion and total di disc arthroplasty. They, uh, the presumed benefit is um, that you have more motion at the segment, uh, at the disease segment compared to a fusion, and therefore uh, likely less chance for uh, adjacent segment disease. And you can also better restore the disc height. Um, but uh, again, you can also restore disc height with a fusion and placement of a cage um, anteriorly or, a, or like a, a disc spacer anteriorly and doing a posterior fusion or an anterior fusion, whatever uh, the patient's anatomy or disease process calls for. So a lot of times it's gonna be a fusion because you're stopping the motion that's causing the pain at these, uh, at the low back. Thank you all for listening to yet another episode of the Nail It Ortho podcast. I know we just talked a lot about some low back pain. Hopefully your back doesn't hurt from listening to that episode. But nonetheless, um, please go ahead and hit the subscribe button. We really want to get your feedback and to know how you like these episodes. If you have any feedback, please let us know. We are totally open to it. And without further ado, go ahead and hit the subscribe button. And we will see you next week for our next episode. Also. Don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel. We are aiming for over a thousand subscribers. All right. Until next time.